Daniel chapter 3. It's really the second half of this incredible, amazing, absolutely unbelievable story of these three brave young men that we saw last time who, who dared to uh, have the courage to stand. And tonight, we're going to see God's response to that. And before we pray, keep that in the back of your mind. It's one thing to stand for the Lord. It's one thing to go through trials for the Lord. But what we really need to cling to is what's God's response going to be when we stand for Him. He's everlasting. His light's always shining. He never fails. He's always on time. He's never late. Even when things look grim, even when you've taken a stand and it looks like you're going to take the hit, God is still good and He's still able. And so let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word. We'll pray for the church in the Philippines as well. Father God, we just come. And Lord, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters, those precious saints in Calvary Chapel, Manila. Lord, really the the whole city that's been affected by this flooding. And God, we realize that you make it rain on the just and the unjust, that the halls of heaven and the clouds that rain their dew down on the earth are in your hands. And so, God, we believe that there must be a reason. There's something that you're trying to do and say uh, through this very difficult time. And we want to pray for the body there, that you would be gracious and kind and merciful, that you'd be Jehovah Jireh to them that you would provide for everything that they have need of. We pray for their safety. We pray that you would uh, even bring an end to the rains, Lord, that would uh, allow them to rebuild and to get back to their homes. And Father, we just pray that your spirit would just be poured out, that they would know uh, that they are loved and cared for and prayed over. And God, remind us throughout this week and into next, God, to just continue to lift, Lord, our brothers and sisters up there, Uh, in the Philippines. And Father, as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, we pray that in the midst of a great battle, in the time of trouble and difficulty, uh, when the temperature is turned up, Lord, when our lives are tested, uh, that you'd keep us cool. Lord, help us to stay steadfast and abounding in that labor that we know is in you, knowing that if we will do that, Uh, that you'll be there with us in the midst of all these things that go on in our lives. And so for those that are maybe tonight struggling, perhaps some difficulty has come, some test, some fiery trial, Lord, pray that you would simply speak your truth into our lives tonight. Bless us as we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're picking up in verse 19. And of course, as we left last time, Here's maybe, let's say conservatively, 100,000 people. We know that Nebuchadnezzar actually called to all of the nations and tongues and the land for those people to come and worship this golden image that was really an image of him. Worship him. They all bow down, and here are three young Hebrew men daring to stand. As I said last time, that is always going to make the world very upset. Every time. Just count on it. If you take a stand for the Lord, you will also take a hit for the Lord. If you dare to to say what God asked you to say, dare to do what God asked you to do, you're going to suffer the consequences of it. There will be consequences, but God is with you in those consequences. And even if he allows something that potentially looks like this fiery trial, you know that he is there with you in the midst of it. Verse 19, it says, And then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Three guys standing, everybody else bowing. That, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you remember, he really gave them the opportunity, after everyone else had bowed, to bow. And so he's done all that the world really will ever do. You don't get many shots at pleasing the world, and then the world comes against you. And so he says to them, and he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And I want you to draw attention to that for a moment. He's not, he's not saying turn it, turn it up seven more notches. It's seven times. It, it is exponential that he's asking this heat to be turned up. 
It's, it's monumentally hot. It is not just going from 400 to 450. It's going from 400 to 400,050. It's just incremental. Each time it's a, it's a factor of seven. And so here he begins to, to bring this picture to light for us. When you displease the world, the world will turn up the heat, and the world has the capacity to turn up the heat to where it's capable of destroying you. But notice what happens. And then he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And so the world begins to do its work. The world does its best. The world does what the world can do, which is to attempt, and hear this well, to put them into bondage. That really is the only power that the world has. That's the power the enemy has, is to bind you. You are absolutely victorious in Christ Jesus. The world will try and bind you. The world will try and tie you up. The world will offer things to you so that you can engage in it and get you all tied up in knots so that you can be thrown into the fiery furnace. These men were bound in their coats and in their trousers and in their turbans and their other garments, and they were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Not a pretty picture. Bad enough that they were tied. You know, in this situation, you can almost kind of hope that you weren't wearing a whole lot because it'd just be instantaneous death. But it appears as though Nebuchadnezzar and the mighty men that he called to tie them up figured we're going to make these guys suffer. The world will try and make you suffer. It will put layer upon layer of despicable things near and on your life in an attempt to bind you. And it says, therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot and the flame of the fire, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. This is a hot fire. This is a trial that kills strong men. There are so many analogies here in this particular passage of Scripture because the world and those in it are helpless before the fire of the world. They don't have the power that you have. The carnal mind cannot know the things of God. And in fact, the carnal mind is helpless against the world. The world is the system that is used to... to minister, if you will, in that negative sense to our carnal minds. And so it has control over you, has control over me without the Lord. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. And so this is a picture, this type of a furnace is much like if you've ever been in the Owens Valley and you go out to the charcoal kilns there uh, near Owens Dry Lake. Uh, you'll actually see some some furnaces like this, the old kilns that were used to make charcoal for the mining process. Relatively tall, this thing was probably 30, 40, 50 feet tall, stoked with charcoal. It's burning ridiculously hot, a very large opening at the bottom, a very small opening at the top, and that was where the, the furnace was actually used for things like smelting. So at the top of the furnace, there's a ramp that goes up to it, uh, along the sides of this clay furnace. And by the time you get up there, it, it's a drop into this inferno. It looks like a little mini volcano sitting out there in the plains of Dura. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselor, Counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And so the picture is this. Here's this giant kiln probably 30, 40 feet across, maybe 50, 60 feet, probably twice as high as it is wide. At the bottom, there's a huge opening into which all this wood can be put inside and then charcoal put in with it, maybe coal or pitch. 
to stoke it up nice and hot. There's a ramp that goes all the way up to the top of it. And so Nebuchadnezzar, to get the most bang for his buck, is now down at the bottom. He does not go to the top because that's where everybody just got fried at. They were burned alive instantaneously for getting near the in, the exit of this jet exhaust of flame coming out of the top of this thing. Nebuchadnezzar's at the bottom, and all of a sudden, plunk, go the dudes. And he's staring in the hole. And he's looking, and he asks, didn't we toss three guys in there? And they answered the king and said, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now it's interesting because at that time, uh, in Babylonian mythology, God actually had a son. And so he is making an analogy, highly likely, that only a God and only perhaps the son of a god was capable of withstanding that. But he still has the amazement of the three men. And he says, And then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the administrators, governors, the king's counselors, gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. And their hair on their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and even the smell of fire was not on them. And so here is this incredible picture of coolness in the, in the midst of a fiery trial. Very familiar passage to all of us. If you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, this is probably in the top ten uh, Bible studies that you'll hear in Sunday school. You know, this is one of them. But I think very often, if we're so familiar with it, I don't think we get out of it all that we can. And there are many things that can be drawn from this particular passage of Scripture, not the least of which is the prophetic application for the Jewish people, which we'll get to later. So their confidence in God made Nebuchadnezzar furious. Does your confidence in the Lord make Nebuchadnezzar furious? Does your confidence in the Lord, as you stand for God, does it make the enemy of your soul rage? You see, that's part of the problem with the body of Christ. I think a lot of Christians, Satan just goes, not scared of them. Don't care about what they're doing. No reason to even waste my time messing with them. There is no reason to tempt or test them because they are doing nothing for the Lord. Not a thing is going on in their lives that has anything to do with building God's kingdom. And so the first point I would draw your attention to is this. Are you making the God of this age furious? Is Does Satan wake up every day and go, oh no, Connie's up. I wish she would go back to sleep. Is I, I wish Daryl would stop getting up in the morning. Every time he does, he just makes me mad. I am totally, if James doesn't stop, I don't know what I'm going to do. Do you make the enemy furious? We need to start making the enemy furious, family of God. Because we basically have ridden on a gravy train for a very long time in this country. And I think we're about to get a real test. Are you going to stand? And are you going to keep cool when the fire comes? Are you going to make the enemy of your soul upset? Because when you do, notice what happens. The heat gets turned up. That's why when people come to you, you know, well, I never have any problems. I will usually say something like, then you're probably not doing much for the Lord. And I don't mean to demean anybody. But if you're not being tested, if you're not being tried, if Satan doesn't have his hand on the knob, cranking up the heat, 
then you're not a threat to him. That's what is being said. If there aren't things going on in your life where you're being tested, where you're being asked to stand, and where you're really getting in the enemy's jaw, you're up in his grill, man. You're in Satan's face going, I'm going to keep serving Jesus. That's when he gets mad. And when he gets mad, he has a lot of power. The good news is, he doesn't have enough power to overcome your God. Ever. And no matter how hard he tries, no matter he goes past 10 all the way to 11, it doesn't matter. The question is, when the heat starts getting turned up, are you going to stay in the kitchen or not? Most Christians don't. Sad to say, but most Christians don't. And I'm not picking on anybody tonight. I spent a long time trying to find some place where the air conditioning was on in my spiritual life. Good analogy for tonight, amen? Where it's comfortable, where I feel good, where nothing bad ever happens to me, where, you know, it's just I get up in the morning and Satan and I have coffee. Never gets warm. He makes sure the breeze is blowing right on my face. You see, we want to make the enemy angry. I, I want to be like Job, man. Job chapter 13. He, he says, if God slays me, I'll serve him. God kills me. If God takes my life, I'll serve him. Not so much a lot of times in the body of Christ. You see, God's purpose in these types of things is very consistent throughout history. In your life, my life, the life of the church, the life of the children of Israel, God overrules evil. He does it all the time. The problem is, a lot of times we don't trust Him to do that. And so we cave in and we go the easy route. And we won't stand. We let our children do whatever because we don't want to have conflict in the home. We, we take up that issue again that we've been delivered from. It's just like, well, you know, so I'm kind of tired of trying, so I'll just kind of cave in. You'll, you'll never make the enemy angry when you give up. You'll only make the enemy angry when you fight. When you say, you know what? Toss me in the furnace. I don't care. I trust God. Not easy. There are basically five things that amaze the king in this vision, and I want you to notice them. You and God are always a supermajority. There were three people hucked in the fire. How many does Nebuchadnezzar see? He sees four. You remember any stories in your Bible that are like that? You remember the disciples out on the lake? The disciples, they're out in the middle of that storm. You remember who pushed them out there? It was Jesus that actually pushed them into the storm. They're in Matthew chapter 14. You remember that little story? He says, I'll meet you on the other side. He was with them in the storm. He walks out to them in the middle of the storm. The same deal is true with, the, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember that story. Elijah thinks he's outnumbered. But he's not outnumbered. He's actually a supermajority. Matter of fact, so much so that just like what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has not yet given his faith to the true and the living God. But he's getting real close, and he's getting real close because of three Hebrew young men that were willing to stand and let the heat be turned up. You remember the story of Elijah? There's a point in time in that story there in First Kings chapter 18 and if you remember what happens there is, is you know, Elijah's basically taunting the prophets of Baal. And he finally says to them, so uh, is your God on vacation? Is he taking a nap? Is he going potty? You know, what's up here? Where is he? You know, I kind of disrespected your God. He had enough courage to stand there and even say to the enemy, I dare you. Do you have enough courage? And I'm not asking you to taunt Satan. I'm asking you to be strong enough to say, you know what, I trust my God enough, have at it. 
I'm going to stand. And if you want to throw me in the fiery furnace, then throw me in the fiery furnace. My God is bigger than you. That's Elijah. That's ultimately the disciples with Jesus. And that's where we should be. The second thing, and this, these things apply to us. There were four people, not three. God's always with you. That's what you need to know from that. The second thing that you see there, not one of those three guys was bound. If God is with you, you're not bound. You are free. So whatever happens, if it costs you your life, you're still free. A third thing. There were four people walking in the fire. They weren't afraid. They weren't lying down. They weren't cowering in fear. They weren't trying to find a cool spot in the inferno. They're walking around doing something. They were actively engaged in the things of the Lord. So in the trial, they were set free. And in the trial, they're still walking. The fourth thing, nobody got harmed. God's your strength and your shield. God's your portion. He's your very present help in a time of trouble. And so if you're going through a trial, I'm going through a trial. My my whole week has been a trial. We've had this whole... Uh, norovirus flu thing going around at the camp to the point that I've spent the last two full days dealing with county health inspectors and doctors and epidemiologists and all this crazy stuff going around. And, and I can tell you, you do not want government health care, okay? You don't want it. They're unreasonable. They have absolutely... Zero clue about what's practical. This is, well, it says here on page 47 of our manual that you do this. If I do that, people are going to die. But it's still on page 47. And for me, Mr. Rational, that's like, God, you're going to have to strengthen me or someone's going to die. Because I don't do stupid very well. I don't do, I don't do the irrational, let's put our brains in a bucket and leave them somewhere else thing when you're talking about the kids and all the things that I do. You see, it would have been really easy to lose my witness. I'm going, Lord, you need to turn this around for good. And so that's all happening now. And so I've got these inspectors and they're calling, go, oh, okay, how's it, how's it going, Jeff? You know, is everything still working? Two days ago, they were getting ready to, you know, throw me in jail. You've got to trust God. He's our strength. He's our shield. He can get you through those difficult things. And a fifth thing. Notice that the other person that's in there is supernatural. You're natural. You have flesh. You've got bone. You can be hurt. You have all that. But that's not true for the Lord. And so your helper that's ever-present and your strength is also supernatural. You need to remember that when you're in the middle of a trial. With God, how many things are possible? All things, amen? Not just some. How much power does God have? He is all-powerful, amen? How many resources does He have? He has all the resources there are in the entire universe. And we need to remember that. That is a supra-being who's in that trial with you and with me. Not like you and me. He's not just flesh and bone. And so things don't have to work out on a spreadsheet or on paper. God is still able to deliver even when things are supernatural. When it takes that supernatural effort, God can do that. You can't, but he can. And I believe that this this incredible picture, much like in Judges 13, where I think... Uh, Samson's parents got a vision uh, of the Lord himself. I think that this is actually the Son of God. I believe it's a Christophany. I I believe it's an appearance of the Lord Jesus uh, in the Old Testament, just showing himself to be faithful. He did that from time to time. The second person of the Trinity just shows up, and it's just like, okay, let me kind of show you what I'm going to be made out of. Moses encountered the angel of God in Exodus chapter 3. And so keeping those flames at bay, that was no big deal for God. 
God incarnate in human flesh walking around in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's just got, I'll keep it cool for you. You just follow me. It won't get so hot that you get burned. Matter of fact, you won't get singed. As a matter of fact, you won't even smell like smoke. Just hang out with me. Remember these guys' names, too. They, they all have some form of God in them. Uh, Hananiah is beloved of God or beloved of Yahweh. And uh, Mishael, remember their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah originally. Who is like God is Mishael. And Azariah is, is God is my help or Yahweh is my help. What an awesome set of names. They're walking around in there. Hey, this is working. When you have stuff like this, you have to remember who God is. You can't just focus in on how weak you are or how unable you might be. God is your ever-present help, and he's with you in the midst of those things. And God loves us. You know, I believe that God uh, was even working already in Nebuchadnezzar. That's why I love chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture with just the encouragement that it brings. Because here you have a pagan king that's going to have a face-to-face meeting with God. I love that. That means there's hope for everybody. Because if there was ever anybody that you would think God would just automatically turn his back on, so if you're one of those people that believes God doesn't reach everybody and doesn't want to reach everybody, read the book of Daniel. Because he's crying out to the most pagan, heathen king, the most powerful man on planet Earth, that just tried to kill three of the most godly guys that existed on the planet at the time. And God's still crying out to him. God didn't just strike him dead right then and there, saying, no, sorry, you're not throwing my boys in the fire. You see, God allows us to go through these things a lot of times to be a witness for him. Some people, I don't know why God allowed this. Almost without exception, you can say, if for no other reason in your life, when God allows some major fiery trial, you can say God is going to use it as a witness to somebody else. That, that, that sickness, that disease, that cancer, these things, it's crazy how many times I've been sharing kind of what, what happened in Brazil and all those kind of things, and people are going like, oh, you did this, you talk, glory to God. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew God called me to go do it. It's up to him. It's his problem if it doesn't work out. Seriously, you have to think that way. And if you think that way, and I'm not saying you don't have fears and human weaknesses and those kinds of things, but I'm saying the Lord is with you in that fiery trial. He's walking around in the fire with you. You know, he took, he took the fire blanket and tossed it over the top. I don't know what he did. I know that they came out unscathed. You talk about an exclamation point. If God wanted to make a point to Nebuchadnezzar, how big a point do you think he just made? And the crazy thing is, he's using some, in essence, some young men who are just crazy enough to do what God asked them to do. And you realize that's really all God's asking us to do, is just dare to be like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just stand up. See what God will do with you. When the trial comes, he's with you in the middle of it. Verse 28, now notice what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is the result of what happens. This is the confession that comes with the witness. We miss that sometimes. This is the confession that comes with a solid witness. When you bear up underneath a trial, when you go through those things, I'm looking around this room and there's some trials that have gone on in this room. There's some huge things. Life threatening things that have gone on in this room. When you bear up underneath that fiery trial, when you get through the other side, when you come out and people are looking at you and you're testifying of the goodness of God and God has worked in your life, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. You talk about standing for the Lord. That is the confession of the most powerful person on the planet. He says these guys are amazing. Now he does not yet believe 
I don't think, yet. He does not yet believe in, in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he's getting really close. And the more they stand for the Lord, the stronger their witness is, the greater that confession of faith is, the, the more power it actually has. And so to some degree, when you go through those very most difficult things in your life, those fiery trials where the heat's been turned up, you've dared to stand for the Lord, you're paying the price for it, all of a sudden you're wondering where is God, you're not sure how it's all going to turn out, and then two weeks later, there you are in a circumstance where only that thing happening in your life can, can shed the good news of the gospel into somebody else's life. They lost their child. You've already lost yours. No one knows what that's like except someone who's been through it. You you can't understand that level of pain without going through it. It's impossible. But when you've been through it and the Lord's worked in your life and you're able to share with someone else who's going through that very difficult thing, your voice means much more than all the books on this earth your practical experience in that fiery furnace. So instead of these Jewish men bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's God, the king basically confessed the God of these three men. It returns the table around. It's kind of funny. You get in these crazy arguments with your, you know, with those people in your family or maybe your friends over the things of the Lord. And the longer you stand your ground, the fewer options they have. And eventually it comes down to choosing one God or the other. And when you do that, it will always be on them and never on you. Stand for the Lord. God sends his angels. God does five things very directly. God sends his only begotten son, I believe, the angel of the Lord. You realize that God is not past doing that for you? God is not past doing that for you. If necessary, the Lord himself is your defense. If the fire's that hot and you need Jesus himself, God has that capacity to be able to do that for you. The second thing you see here that God directly does for these young men in response to their faith is that God delivers those who trust in him. God does not deliver people who do not have faith. God delivers people who have faith. He may be circumstantially good to virtually anybody. He may be provisionally good, but in the sense of deliverance, if you say, Lord, I'm placing my faith and trust in you, and if you don't come through, this is going to turn out bad, he delivers his people. He's the deliverer. Only God can do that. It's interesting also how God moves in Nebuchadnezzar's life to make him change his mind. You ever tried to change people's minds? You ever thought you had, I, this is one of my weaknesses. I have what I call the pervasive speech argument, almost always. It's like, I'm, I'm like, okay, I can win this. You give me yours, I'll give you mine. Eventually you'll give up because I'll give you more. Than, that's just the way my brain functions. Notice this. The king changes his mind. You want, to leave, you want to win your arguments? Let God speak for you. Let his words be your words. In direct response to these men being so sold out for the Lord, they were willing to die in order to remain true. The Lord honored that faith, and they lived. On the fifth day, There is no other God. Notice the confession of the king. There isn't anybody else that can do this. It's one of those crazy things about watching the enemy work in the world. You see, the enemy never tells you the end of your life. And if you've ever been engaged in some type of sinful behavior, almost all of us, myself included, would say to you, I never thought it would turn out the way it did. I believe from the beginning that this, whatever it was, and you can name whatever you got into, You always thought it was going to turn out better. The enemy doesn't tell you you're going to die. The enemy doesn't tell you you're going to be killed. The enemy tells you you're on the winning side. It's going to be okay. He can't do that because he can't pull off the victory. He's incapable. 
He can't save. And so at the end of the day, he has no other tool than to let you perish. To let you die. God says even if you die, you live. Very different set of perspectives. Verse 29, and therefore I make a decree that any people, and notice this, this is the same exact wording he uses to get the people to come and bow down. So in this one fiery trial around these three Jewish young men who stood for the Lord, who were brave enough to say, whatever, bind us up, huck us in the furnace, we're still not bowing down, we're not going to do it, isn't going to happen. Therefore, I make a decree to the exact same people he's already told, bow down to my image. The only way you change anybody's mind is by standing for the Lord. Because when you're a hypocrite and when you change your mind and you tell them that, well, you know, God didn't really mean that. And, you know, yeah, it says that in Scripture, but, you know, it doesn't apply to you because you're my friend. Trust me, people do this. I know what it says. I don't like what it says. And because I like that person, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a close friend. You are not going to stand for the Lord. You're going to change your mind. You're going to turn around and say something different. You will not win that person for Christ. They will see that hypocrisy for what it is. and They say, if that's as strong as your God is, I don't want any part of him. Tough thing here. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no God who can deliver like this. Even the heathens acknowledge the power of God when we stand for him. They may not turn right away. Your unbelieving spouse may not turn right away. Your kids may not come to Christ right away. Maybe you're in that group of people that, you know, have not walked with Jesus most of your life. And maybe you raised your kids in, in that home where there wasn't the fragrance of Christ initially. It may not happen, but I'm telling you, the only chance you have to turn that around is to stand for, for the Lord from the time you make that decision to the time Jesus takes you home. And don't compromise. Because the cry here is, there's only one God that can do what these guys just went through. And if you want people to see God's power, you've got to live in his power. I have to live in his power. The church has to live in his power. We need to live in his power together so that God will get the glory for his power. And not us. Not some dumb book we write. Not some program we start up, not some thing that we do, not some thing that we build, but the true and the living God gets the glory for the changed lives, for the consistency and the lack of hypocrisy in which we carry out our daily existence on this earth. And then he, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so they are now commissioned. They, they, they go from being fodder for the fire to the king's emissaries. They go from being dead meat to alive and well and glorious for the kingdom purposes that God has for them. And you see, there's a, there's a huge picture here. If God can't trust you to stand, then he's not going to promote you. Sometimes people will come and say, well, what does it take to get into ministry? I will tell them, Go teach second and third graders for a couple of years. Volunteer to rake pine needles. Do whatever you can for the kingdom and do it faithfully. No whining, no complaining, no talking about other people, about how you're better than they are. I'm telling you this because I've lived it, okay? I thought I was doing God a favor by getting saved. It's like, man, you got somebody great now, Lord. The only thing I realized after the fact was, not only did he not need me, he actually could only use me after he broke me. God, God isn't going to share his glory with anybody 
And if you're not faithful in the small things, as Scripture says, he will not entrust you with much. If you can't be trusted to minister in your own home, he won't give you a Bible study. If you can't be trusted in the Bible study, you're never going to be in leadership. If you can't be trusted in some form of minor leadership, you're never going to be in pastoral ministry. You're never going to lead that ministry. If you can't be trusted in giving, you're not going to be entrusted with God's finances. If you can't be entrusted with faithfully sharing the word, you're never going to get a chance to share the word on a regular basis. It won't happen. Because the one criteria that you see in these men was faithfulness. They said, Lord, we don't know what's going to happen. But we trust you, and we're going to remain faithful to you, even if it costs us our lives. God can use faithfulness in anybody, anywhere, anytime. But you can take the most gifted person on this planet who is unfaithful and they are useless to God. And I've met a few of them. I've met some unbelievably talented musicians. I've met some greatly gifted orators, people that could speak well. But there was no humility. There was nothing but pride. And they were in it for them and not in it for God, and they weren't faithful to God, and God can't use them. These guys gave their lives to the Lord, and they said, at the threat of death, you got all of us, Lord. It's an amazing picture. The last few minutes we have tonight, I want to give you a little different spin on this, because there is another picture here, and it's the prophetic picture. And remember, these guys are Jews. Amen? We know in the very last days, according to the book of Joel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Zephaniah, that God is once again going to restore the Jewish people into a right relationship. The book of Romans plainly declares that in Romans chapter 11. In fact, it goes so far as to say that one day all Israel will be saved, not speaking of every Jew, but the nation itself, much like we are known as a Christian nation, will become a Christian nation. We know, and we're going to get to in Daniel chapter 9, what that actually means. But Jeremiah the prophet actually called it a very unique name. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, he said that time would be the time of Jacob's trouble. And in actual, in the Hebrew language, it actually said a time for Jacob's trouble. In other words, those children that were of Jacob, the Jewish people, that there would come a point in time where they would go through a fiery trial like the world has never seen. And if you read Joel chapter 3, you'll understand exactly what that's talking about because Joel chapter 3 actually tells us where in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which also happens to be the valley of Megiddo, which is Armageddon. It says, I will gather there all of the nations and all of the peoples of the earth to bring them into judgment, says the Lord. And he then says, why? For what they have done to my people and to my land. And so when we look at this prophetic application of this process, you can see there's going to come a time when God's going to actually do this again, except on a global scale. Because God delights to use spectacular things to draw men to himself. Remember that the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, which we'll get to in chapter 9, is for the very specific purpose of bringing the Jewish people as a nation to faith in Messiah. He's going to seal 144,000 Jews. He's going to bring them into a right relationship. He's going to allow a couple of crazy disciples, the two witnesses, to minister outside of the rebuilt temple that will be built in Jerusalem. And all hell literally will break loose on the earth. The world will come unhinged, apart at the seams. Death and destruction will be the norm. By the end of the tribulation, two-thirds, almost three-quarters of the world's population will be wiped out and killed. But guess who lives? The Jewish people. Guess, guess who largely survives? The Hebrews. And so prophetically speaking, I believe this is actually looking forward to a time that is still yet future. And as you look specifically at the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, you look what it says there and how uh, he approaches that in, in Isaiah 43. It says there in, in Isaiah 43 in verse 1, it says, But now, what is it that the Lord says? He created you, O Jacob. 
Remember, Jeremiah in chapter 30 says the time of Jacob's trouble. That there will come a time, it's also known as the, the 70th week of, or the 70th week of Daniel. It's known as the tribulation to us from the book of Revelation. This is the period of time when God finally says, you know what? It's time to bring my children into a right relationship. Viewing that in advance, the prophet Isaiah said, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. What did God do to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? He redeemed them. He said, all hell's breaking loose, but don't worry. I'm for you. Hear this. This is crazy. It goes on to say, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, for you are mine. That is exactly what he said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he called them out of the fiery furnace. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Then it goes on to say, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And so to some degree, this passage here in Daniel has given us a preview of what is still ahead for the Jewish people themselves as a whole. As God pours out his wrath on the earth, as he saves the Jewish people from that time of testing and trial. He goes on to tell of some of the nations that uh, I will give you Egypt for ransom and Cush and and Sebia in your stead. He's saying those nations that currently are surrounding Israel and are their mortal enemies to this day. He's going to hand them over. Can you imagine? You know, there was a time during the 67 war that the Jewish people believed that this passage here in Isaiah had, had come to fruition because if you remember that six-day war in which the Israel, Israel, Israelis were outnumbered more than 100 to 1 on the battlefield, and in every piece of mechanized whatever you want to name, at least 10 to 1, if not more, they actually took the northern part of Egypt. And they believed, oh, see, they, we've been given Egypt. They also took Jordan, which is Sebia, and Cush, which is in northern Africa. They gathered all of that. But they then gave it back. So they still don't own that land right now. And yet that's part of the land that God gave as an inheritance to the Jewish people. And so Daniel says, prophetically looking forward, throw my people in the fire, I'll be there with them. Remember the two witnesses of Revelation? Whole world's coming apart at the seams. They're actually martyred. They they lie in state for three days and in front of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. That temple's not there yet. But the Jewish people want to rebuild it. And there's room for it. You could still squeeze it in. Zechariah said, In the whole land, declares the Lord, during Zechariah 13, two-thirds will be struck down and perished, and one-third will be left, and a third will bring, I will bring into the fire. It basically says two-thirds of the world will one day be wiped out, and the final third will actually go through the fire. Again, it's a complete picture of what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three guys hucked into the fire. And it also says there in that passage that the Lord was with them. And so the fiery furnace is really kind of a preview of the Great Tribulation. Kind of gives us a picture of the whole world. The whole world in Nebuchadnezzar came against the Jews. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It looked like they were going to lose. They were bound and tied up. It looks like right now, man, how is Israel going to get out of this mess? You ever thought of that? I shared with you before. The whole nation, Israel is slightly smaller than San Bernardino County. It's slightly smaller. It has about 8 million people. How does that work out that they're going to be saved? How, how, do, you, how do you get Paul's words there in Romans 11 and justify them with what's going on in the world? It looks like any moment Iran gets a bomb, they drop two or three of them, the Jews are gone. That's probably what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought, too, when they were being led up those stairs. In a human sense, they're going, oh, this isn't looking so good. 
unless you know who's with them in the fire. And the same is going to be true in the tribulation. It's going to look like it's over. We're not going to be here, by the way. We'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm firmly convinced not having a clue of what's going on down here on the earth, because I don't see how we could be enjoying ourselves at a feast, knowing that the entire world was engulfed in war. But I know this. We're coming back one day to rule and reign with Jesus. What this passage in Daniel says is, the most powerful man on earth finally recognized exactly who God was. At the tribulation, I believe Satan is going to know that he's lost. And I believe when he gets finally bound, which he will, and when the millennial reign of Christ begins, which it will, and when he is released at the end of that to wreak havoc one more time for those who were born during that time that do not have their glorified bodies and they will have the power of choice yet, when he does that, I think at that point in time, the enemy's going to know he's lost. But until then, he's going to keep trying to throw you guys in fire trials. He's going to try and get you to quit. You realize that the only way the enemy can win, the only way the enemy can win in your life is if you give up. It's that simple. He cannot beat you. You are God's child. Amen? Are you not God's children? You're God's children. So if he be for you, how many people can be against you? No one. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing, no one, no thing, not any created thing, not the universe itself can separate you from the love of God. So in Christ Jesus, is there any way for you in Christ to lose? The answer is no. If you have your theology correct, the answer to that question is no. So the only way you can lose is if you give up. Because in him, you're an automatic winner. You've already won. The battle's been won. The question is, how many battles will you win on the journey to heaven? How many battles are you going to win on the journey to heaven? How many times in the fiery furnace are you going to come out unsinged, unscorched, unburnt, completely set free in Christ Jesus to where you're just walking around the world going, this guy is crazy insane for God. This woman is so on fire for the Lord, you can't help but admire and honor that faith. And I haven't quite come to terms with it yet, but I know there's something very real about that kind of faith because they kept it cool when they went through the fire. They came out, they weren't even burned. Came out the other side, yeah, they, they went through that terrible thing. But they loved their God more than they did when they got thrown in. They're, they're walking closer to Jesus than when they went in. They're more on fire for the Lord than when they went in. That's the picture here. What are you going to let God do? Because he wants to blow the world's mind. He wants to freak people out with your faith. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Think about the disciples for a second. You remember, Peter wasn't exactly the stellar evangelist at first. Peter, Peter, Peter. Before the night's over, you will deny that you ever knew me three times. And he did. He did. And the last time was to a servant girl. It wasn't a bunch of army dudes. It was not a bunch of centurions. It was not a, a cohort of the emperor's finest troops. It was at a little campfire and a little servant girl. And she said, didn't I see you with the disciples? And he almost cussed. The language of the New Testament says he basically used an epithet to say to her, you are losing it. But by the time you get to Acts chapters 2 and 3, that same Peter, the Peter who denied the Lord, that then confessed the Lord with everything within him, is standing up there saying, you men of Israel, you who crucified the Lord, in whose name I now stand. He preaches this incredible sermon and 3,000 people at once get saved. The only difference is standing in the trial. The only difference. It was the same Peter. He was saved the first time. 
He's still saved the second time, but now he's walking in faith. Now he's walking in power. Now he's saying, Lord, if it costs me my life, if you let me get tossed in the furnace, I will serve you. No matter what happens. That's what faith does. Faith causes us to stand. Faith causes us to keep it cool when the fire gets turned up seven times hotter. As sure as Babylon will rise, because Scripture says it will, we have faith that's sufficient for that challenge. There is no thing that touches you that is not common to man, that in it, Scripture declares, there is a way of escape. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That in Him you are more than conquerors through Him who loves you. And in that, we may get hucked into a few furnaces. You may have some fiery trial. I pray the devil is mad when you get up in the morning. I really do. I pray that our lives matter in the kingdom. That Satan's not happy. That he is mad as a hornet. I pray that we give him reasons to try and throw us into a fiery furnace. And that's not to taunt him. I never want to give you the impression that you should needlessly bring that type of trial into your life. Don't, you know, don't taunt Satan. He's very powerful. But you can stand very strong no matter what he throws at you. So strong that when he throws it, you can simply say, I'm not bowing. I'm trusting God. And even if you kill me, I'm going to keep trusting God. That's what happened with Jim Elliott. That's what Corey Ten Boom did. And I pray that's what we do. Because those times are going to come. I'm not saying we're going to have global war next week. I'm saying the enemy should hate you so much that, that you have declared war on him, not him on you. You've said with everything within you, you know what, I'm going to stand for the Lord. If that means the fire gets cranked up a little bit, the fire gets cranked up a little bit. And God will be with you in the midst of it. He's been with Connie and I. We've watched him do amazing things that we never thought could happen. Got two wonderful sons, neither of which we thought we'd ever have. Those are miracles. We can follow suit. Jude, verses 22 and 23, say this. It says, Be merciful to those who doubt and snatch others from the fire and save them to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. We're supposed to be so strong that there isn't even a stain, that there isn't smoke, there isn't fire. And I pray that we do that. Because I know God needs warriors in these days. And He can use you right where you're at. He can use me right where I'm at. He can use me to speak love to county inspectors. He can use you to meet the needs of that person in Jensen's. Are we going to look for those divine appointments and let God use us? I pray we do. Keep it cool, folks. Let's pray. Father, we pray, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome there in chapter 5, that, God, would you help us to rejoice in our suffering because we know that that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Lord, we need hope and we need perseverance. We need character. And pray that you would just help us with that. And as we go through those trials, as we see you faithfully be our defense and our fortress and strong tower, Lord, Lord, our ever-present help in that time of trouble. When we go through those things, Lord, it just causes our trust and our faith to grow. Help us to have faith to stand. And as we stand, we pray that we keep cool heads as the world comes against us. Use us, Lord, we pray, throughout this week 
Bless our families. Touch us, God. Lord, I pray that you'd heal the sick among us. I pray that our hands would be your hands and our voices would be your voices. And Lord, even down to the nickels in our pocket, that they would be yours. And God, we pray that you'd help us to never walk past a, a need that we can meet. Lord, that we look at everything as an opportunity to, to give you glory, to honor you. Help us to stand when the flames get turned up hotter. Help us to stand all the more firm, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.